welcome listeners. Thank you for tuning in uh, to the AFC podcast. I'm here with my co-host Victoria Fragnado. Say hi, Victoria. I'm not doing that. Uh, <laughs> not going to say hi to you guys. No, not That's today. <laughs> today, our day player is going to be Brandon Ford Green. Brandon is an actor, a filmmaker, an audition coach. Uh, you may recognize him as Richard Pryor from I'm Dying Up Here. He was on an episode of episodes. Uh, and he also is a filmmaker. He wrote and directed and starred in the film Good Grief, which you'll be able to see on Amazon Prime. And we'll give you all the fun links and stuff like that afterwards. He suggested for us to watch the indie film Rachel Getting Married. So we'll talk about that later on the show too. Of course. And I just want to remind everyone too, that while you may be watching this on YouTube, uh, you can also watch this on Apple podcasts or google podcasts and by watch i mean listen uh because those will be audio only versions uh but if you do want to watch some of the stuff that we will be putting on here or watch us talk we are on youtube just find that link we'll be out here um so rachel getting married is very cool mm -hmm. it's a very dramatic film yes kind of, it, drama films are they're basically the core of a lot of movies drama is a very general genre um I don't know do you have like a favorite dramatic film because i mean that that narrows it down to like maybe there's like 20 movies that aren't dramatic yeah i mean it really is such a wide range of you know because like if i think like the movie the american president is a drama but it's not there are you know funny moments and lighthearted moments and i don't think it's quite as heavy as this film is um so i mean yes they all fit into the drama category but uh, i mean that's it's such a wide range of i mean a film is very different when you say and th this is when you google the film rachel getting married it comes up as a drama slash drama right <laughs> drama there's nothing else there's no action it's not also comedy it's no. not funny at all no. It is just a drama. It's a very heavy movie with a lot of heavy subject matter. And sometimes you're just in the mood to watch a movie like that. Uh, I was not. So this movie was a little tough to get through, I'm not going to lie. It made yeah. me anxious. The way it was filmed made me anxious. And I think the last time I felt like that was The Joker. But I can't really think of another movie that really like made me anxious. Uh, but the way the Joker was filmed too was it also like I was unnerved. I was like watching it in the theater and I felt like like I wanted to like check my phone or look away or do something else, but like you can't because you're in the theater. But watching this movie, there were points where I paused it and I was like, I need I need a second <laughs> and I would walk away. I, uh, I think it's you know, because it's so real and when, when films do this, like uh, you know, there's nothing, there's no fantasy, there's no magic. It literally is just a very straightforward slice of life situation. Um, well, it's a very heavy slice of life situation. You can see the awkward things coming down the pipeline and you're just cringing because you feel yeah. like you're in the middle of it. I know I definitely, I didn't pause it um, through the film uh, because I felt uncomfortable, but I was definitely fighting you know i had to put my phone down a lot because i was like i need to distract myself from the awkward awkward moments yeah it, it's tricky too i mean there's no pausing real life and there were parts of this movie that you feel like 
you're in the room with them and it's real life. So the, the most awkward points, and we'll get into this a little bit more later, I really like instinctively, it wasn't even like I thought about it. I was like, I need a minute. It was just like, mm, no, and I paused and I went, I like made myself lunch and came back to it. Um, but it's very heavy movie. Some movies are just so heavy. And and I, I feel like right now, especially with quarantine and all that stuff, I know when I first, when we first got into quarantine, I couldn't watch anything heavy and I, I didn't want to watch anything new. I think I read something that, uh, and of course this is just some, you know, random Facebook post or whatever, but I, I read that uh, on Facebook, someone shared that the reason why people, certain people like to rewatch things over and over and over again is because all the anxiety of what's going to happen next is gone. So that they feel comforted because they know what's coming next. And I know at the beginning of quarantine, I definitely was doing that. Um, now that we are on the podcast and we're doing that, I'm, I'm having to expand my horizons and watch certain things uh, that I've never watched before and watch new stuff. And I'm starting to finally like watch episodes of shows that I've never seen before, but I could definitely feel that in, in watching, like I even watch, I was watching Upload. Um, I was feeling anxiety and that watching Dead to Me definitely felt anxiety watching that. What's Upload? Um, Upload is a new show on Amazon and it's created by Greg Daniels, the same creator of the American office. I think he's, I don't know if he's also connected with the, Greg Daniels is connected with the British office, but he's definitely the American office and Parks and Rec. Um, and so essentially in upload uh, your consciousness, when you die, you have the option of having it uploaded to a digital realm. So you're still alive, just kind of in this digital afterlife. Um, huh. And there's this whole, you know, was this person uploaded thoughts and stuff. So I was getting anxiety watching it. And of course, dead to me is just... <sighs> <laughs> just can't at that show I, but I you can't stop watching it either I would know I haven't started but oh my god watch it upload sounds really cool I mean that's I'm into anything sci-fi and you throw that at me uh but the, by the same guy as the office and parks and rec is it a comedy is it it's it's definitely funny but there's you know some serious it, it has because it's not taking place in an office or you know in city hall and you know Pawnee uh, yeah. it's, you know, it's definitely got some more drama to it. Uh, Black Mirror did an episode like that, and it's one of their most highly rated episodes. I believe it's called San Bernardino. I want to say that's what it is. Uh, and it's about these people that are uplit, and you don't know it at first. So spoiler alert, I just ruined the show for you. What? Uh, but basically, these people are just, they're getting old, and they can upload their consciousness to this digital realm where it just lives forever in this blissful happiest point in their lives so one of them was like grew up in the 90s so she loved the 90s so she wanted to live in the 90s forever mm. so that was the spot that she was going to basically relive the same week digitally forever so like she was this older woman who was almost on the verge of dying she was kind of getting like test runs into it and getting like a feel for it 
and you follow these two characters that one of them is just trying to test it out before she dies to decide whether or not she wants to do this or you know just die and let her spirit go on and that's it mm -hmm. and then the other character who's realizing that she is one of these people already in it and she's like oh because you they make you forget that you've been uploaded into this thing oh so she's like i'm what i'm dead no how long have i been here it's fucking wild uh but that's black mirror black mirror also is one of those shows they came out and they said we're not filming anything for a while because all of their shows are about like post-apocalyptic like world-ending scenarios where countries fall apart mm -hmm. and that's not appealing right now during pandemic times as yeah. you said it's tough to watch stuff like that um i personally i haven't been watching a lot of shows at all just because they're i like to immerse myself so when i watch something i'm very zoned into it so i'm having trouble keeping my head in those things but that's why i'm also playing more video games i think because i can immerse myself in that because i'm actually doing the things yeah so i have to i like putting my head to it and i'm actually like playing through these storylines um so i feel like gaming is taking up my time in a more in, in a way that keeps my mind going a little bit more than just watching movies because movies for me too are kind of like an escape so like you get home from work, you want to like zone out and watch a movie. And now it's like, I, you know, I'm constantly home from work. So I'm zoned out watching movies. It's too much. I'm too zoned out. I want to focus on something. Um, but yeah, uh, I liked Rachel getting married too, because it's not only is it this big movie with a bunch of big names in it, it's also just an independent film. It's a little smaller scale. Yeah. Um, which I think independent movies sometimes too are chances for bigger name actors to take on roles that they normally wouldn't. You know, Anne Hathaway, who was Catwoman and she's in movies all the time, big Hollywood movies. Uh, she played this really grounded role. So it was, it was cool to see her in a different kind of light. Um, Cause I'm used to her just wearing spandex and running around. And I mean, I, I think it's, you know, that that is something that's appealing. That's why a lot of indie films will get bigger name actors to sign on to them is because it's a it's you know a role that they can really sink their teeth into. And sometimes you know with the bigger budget films or with the really you know a list movies, they don't always get that. They don't always get the chance to really flex their acting muscles and and do something that's kind of out of the box for them. Yeah, so, I mean from crew members as well where you have a crew member who is somebody that might be a very skilled camera person who can shoot things and make you see visual stories in different ways but they get hired on these massive productions like let's just say a marvel movie just for the sake of it because that's one of the largest consistently having happening type of movie uh they're exactly what to do and how to do it to the t you know, there's no room for error. There's no room for change because all of the decisions about these movies were made like four years ago and they're drawn by artists at this point. And you could probably watch the movie via, it, imagine having like a book of all the storyboards and just doing like a flip book and just panning yeah. through all the images. Now you just need the voiceover and you can, that, that's the movie right there. Basically yeah. stop motion of all the uh, animated parts. But 
you know, those movies, they're so decided upon in advance, you don't get the freedom that you get when you make an independent film. I think that's sometimes lost. And I, I like working on independent films because you can, in the moment, be like, oh, this isn't working. Let's change it up and do some interesting different stuff. Maybe add a shot, take away a shot that doesn't make any sense. Um, Especially with, with something like Rachel getting married, you know, and it, it's, you know, one location, essentially, for mo most of the film, it's one location. Like, even the wedding is happening at the house. Like, it's not like they're going yeah. out there for it. So, at that point, you know, when, when films really lock into a location like that, I have a feeling that the, you know, the actors and, and the director and the you know, cinematographer, everyone can really kind of take ownership of that space and really feel like they're a part they're a part of it that's it's not just the set we're going to today because we have to shoot a scene in the house you know if it feels a lot more they feel more comfortable i guess yeah you get used to the environment too that you're in mm -hmm. uh, so i mean if, if you spend a lot of time and this happens more with tv shows so if you said hey let's talk about uh full house I know exactly what the inside of their house looks like. I can tell you how when you walk in the front door, there's a staircase to the left and you walk through the living room and there's a back area behind the couch and then you go into the kitchen and that's where the kitchen is. And then there's an upstairs staircase. Like I know that layout of that house because I've seen it for seasons. Yep. Um, when you're in a movie and you spend one scene in a room, you might not get so soaked into that environment. But when you spend the whole movie in there, in, in one house, or literally yeah. in one house, you begin to learn what it's like to be the character in that setting, which is really cool. It lets you soak into it and be immersed in it a little bit more. <laughs> I, I, I loved and, and didn't love watching it, I guess, because of the time that we're in. Um, but I, I just loved all, all of the intimacy of it and how you felt like you were really there. Yeah, I appreciated too how how the actors really felt like I was getting like their best performances, and mm -hmm. some of the actors too I didn't even know who they were, but they were phenomenal. Um, I I loved because um, I Bill Irwin played the father, and he's um, he's famous for clowning. Um, he's fantastic. I remember watching him on an episode of the Cosby Show when I was a kid, um, and. Bill Cosby oh, brought Rudy and a bunch of her friends to see a clown and it was Bill Irwin. Um, and he didn't have like the face paint or the bright red nose, but his physical comedy was phenomenal. He's one of the masters. And then to see him in this role as this father, I love watching actors jump mediums like that, especially when you have theater actors going from theater to film because in theater you already feel like you were in the room with them you have a little bit more of an intimate connection but watching them transfer from being like this bigger than life character that has to cross the footlights of a of a stage to reach the audience member in the last row now there's a camera up in their face and you can see all of the inner workings and it's i just love that yeah i think this uh i usually stay away from saying stuff like this but i think this would work really well as a play this movie oh yeah um oh, yeah. It, would, it would very well be very easily be adapted to be a play i mean it, you know 
it, it just because it all takes place in one spot, it's easy enough to manage, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but, you know, usually I try to stay away from that. I don't think everything needs an adaption into every medium. You know what I mean? Uh, no, I, I agree. As, as, you much, know. as big of a nerd as I am, I don't need to see Avengers take place on a Broadway stage. So Spider-Man, get it together. No, Spider-Man <laughs> needs to go home. He did. He went home. He went home with a couple broken legs <laughs> and broken arms mm -hmm. uh, multiple times because he kept falling off of that fucking rope. <laughs> Good Sp job. Spider-Man, Spider-Man. <laughs> well, um, on that note, do you think we should bring Brandon on now? I think so. I think we're going to show his acting reels, see some of the stuff that he's been in, uh, including his role as Richard Pryor and his role on the show Episodes. Not an episode. It was an episode of Episodes. Right. Also a little snippet from Good Grief. And uh, then we're going to bring him on and we'll talk to him about all that stuff after. You know Ali? Yeah, yeah. Float like a butterfly, sting like a motherfucking bee? See, that's the game, Jack. This ain't no Bob Hope, motherfucker. You feel me? I, f I feel you. They want that sting, man, that, that knockout punch. They don't want to see a nigga dance. This ain't some cotton club bullshit. This is motherfucking comedy, man. So you gotta hit him. You hit him motherfucking again. You gotta keep hitting him until the motherfucker go down. See, my daddy was a boxer. It's like, moves, man. You see this shit right here? Yeah, I'm seeing it. Damn motherfucking straight, you're seeing it. <laughs> I don't know if y'all know this, but Ralph is black. Ralph, you black, right? Is the Pope a virgin? Is the Pope a virgin? How I know I ain't smelled his dick. <laughs> Damn. You were saying maybe you could just give me a slap on the wrist? No, you were saying that. <laughs> I knew someone said it. <laughs> uh, you were going over 90 with a 1.7 alcohol level, so... That's crazy. I had a couple glasses of champagne. Guess you need more body mass. Yeah. That's what I need. <laughs> Other hand. Seriously, there's got to be a way you could just give me, like, a warning. Now with kids in the car. Look, I'm kind of going through a custody thing right now. Yeah, I hear you. That sucks. Okay, I got to ask you for a photograph. Absolutely. Happy to. You want to do one all of us together, or...? I was so mad at him when he put me in that comic. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder why. Hey, it's not funny, Benny. He made me white. <laughs> Come on, you know the rule. There can only be one token black kid in a group, and I got dibs. Oh, yeah, like Corey couldn't have changed it? No. He went to print before he knew about it. It was too late. Well, you didn't know any of this? Yes. How do you know? Because I asked him about it. But if that wasn't bad enough, he goes and makes me a dumb, ugly tomboy white girl. Well. You're gorgeous now, so I guess you showed him. Wait, wait, are you saying I'm dumb? Mm -hmm. I'm not playing that game. 
He really won't tell me who started in all your high school wet dreams. Nope. All right, and now we have with us Brandon Ford Green. Brandon, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Brandon is a filmmaker, an actor, a, an audition coach, extraordinaire, all the wonderful things. So Brandon, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got into the whole acting filmmaking business in the first place? Oh, um, when I was a kid, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a quick version of a long story. When I was a kid, my dad was uh, a, an acting teacher and he was, he was my first acting teacher. So I started when I was six. It was just a fool around as a kid and then I got out of it for a while and when I started high school I wanted an easy A so I took drama uh, as I think most people do that's the trap uh, and I realized oh I'm not bad at this um, and then I decided to go to a conservatory and after that I just kept going because I loved it so much nice well how did you decide to start creating your own stuff I mean you made a film good grief which is Awesome. I love that film. Yeah, oh, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, it was an idea I had many, many years ago. I was in a sketch comedy group and I, I wrote this sketch about the peanuts all grown up. And that was inspired by, it was inspired actually by an article in some local newspaper about the musical Rent. And this person hated the musical rent. It was just a scathing interview uh, or a review. And I thought it was funny the way he wrote it. So I kept it and he compared the characters and rent to the peanuts characters. And then there's this whole Chris rock thing on SNL where he's talking about the peanuts characters on the news. So I kind of took those two ideas and made a sketch out of it. And then, but it was too long. And someone said, Oh, you should make a play out of this. Like, I've never written anything before, so I tried to write it as a play, and it was terrible. Um, I still have it. It's really bad. Um, and then years later, I figured, oh, I know how I'm going to do this. I'm going to work with other actors and um, use improvisations and workshop the, the, the script and kind of get nuggets of ideas from whatever they improvise. And from there, I kind of made the script. I don't know if I answered your question just now. <laughs> I, I was just curious as to, you know, what, what made you want to, you know, create a, a film out of it. But sometimes it's not, you know, ideas don't always start as, I mean, Scar yeah. you, which you are part of, started as just a scene for a reel that I needed. I needed to do that. Right. So projects sometimes don't, oh, they're not linear all the time. Yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, I guess in my mind, I always wanted to create my own content, but I never really thought I knew how or even that it was possible and and then it's just something I just kept chipping away at for years and I got to a point where I got real serious about this and I was like I'm gonna make this happen I don't know how like in hindsight I re I'm thinking it was never an option not to make it like that was, that was something that was always gonna happen but in the moment, I just realized it, it just seemed like a, a, a pipe dream. Like how, how in the world is this gonna happen? How am I gonna get the money for this? I don't know anything about filmmaking. I don't know anything about writing. I remember telling my mom uh, saying, 
hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna write and direct a feature film that I'm in. And she's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> like, I'll believe it when I see it. And then she went to the premiere and she's like, I can't believe you pulled this off. <laughs> I'm like, you can't, I can't either, so. I mean, you never know when you put a project together, you might come up with a short film and it comes into, it becomes a play and then it becomes a movie and then it keeps adapting, becoming something new. Yeah. You know, sometimes things just snowball and they work out and it looks like it worked out. So you got to make this movie, which is really cool. Yeah, I, I remember, um, you know, in order to get people's attention, you know, you write the script and you, you send it out to people so they'll read it. But apparently reading is hard. Um, and I know because I've been, uh, you know, I've been given scripts before and I, I, I'll read part of them and I just won't finish them for whatever reason. It's it's silly. Um, I have a rule if I'm working on a film production crew and I'm not one of the creative people, like mm -hmm. if I'm a producer or if I'm not one of the writers or a director or someone who needs to worry about those things, I just won't read the script. That oh, interesting. Why is that? It's it's because sometimes you read the script and then you get an idea of like, like oh, I'm hooked into this terrible script now. <laughs> it's it's not good sometimes. Oh. Um, and sometimes too, you might read it and get your own picture of it in your head. And then as a camera person, or I mean, camera, you maybe need to read the script so you know what the stuff you're trying to convey. But when you're a camera assistant, you can kind of get away with just doing your crew related work getting that done mm. and not you, you get to focus on that one thing make sure you're doing everything right because there's a lot of technical aspects you want to make sure you do everything right yeah um, but when you're also in the headspace of like thinking about creative things then all of a sudden you see the director making decisions and in your brain you're like i would do this differently I, I would make this movie differently but maybe that's just me because i do play both sides and i do do a bunch of different things but I try to just keep my focuses on one thing during production. So I try not to do all. Yeah. I've run into the danger of that on both ends where, you know, I would show someone my script and then all of a sudden they had their ideas and would try to revamp everything I was doing. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what this is. And that's not what I need your help with. But they were so adamant about trying to make it the way they wanted to make it. Yeah. And on the flip side, <laughs> this happened to me recently uh someone who i had worked with previously really wanted me to play this role in this movie that they wrote and they sent me the script and were like let me know what you think i'm like okay so i started giving them my feedback of the script but they didn't want my feedback on the script they wanted my thoughts on how to play the character but that wasn't specified and they got real upset with me like, I know what I'm doing and I'm a professional and this, that, and the other. I'm like, look, I thought it was odd that you asked my opinion in the first place. <laughs> but anyway, that's a whole other situation. <laughs> well, so is that, is that why you ended up deciding to direct uh, Good Grief yourself instead of getting an outsider to do it or? I don't know. I wasn't against the idea of having another director. I just... I knew the world so well. And I had directed short films in the past um, and plays in the past. Um, and I started directing when I was like 16. Not a lot, but here and there. And 
I just figured I, who else is going to know this world better than I do. And no director had come forward with a thought, with any ideas that I thought trumped my own. Um, and, you know, I'm one less person you have to pay if, I, if I'm directing the film. So yeah, that's, that's another factor. That's true. <laughs> well, so I have to ask now that Good Grief is available on Amazon Prime for everyone listening. Please go watch it. It's awesome. Yeah. Um, links and everything so people can find it. Mm -hmm. what, um, what was the process of getting your film on Amazon Prime? What was all of that like? Because I'm sure a lot of people listening are in the process of trying to get their stuff there. Well, that is uh, exclusively the responsibility. Not, um, shouldn't use the word responsibility. That the, I, the credit all goes to my distributor. Mm. Like I, I mean, I'm sure I could have figured out a way to do it. I know a lot of films that are on Amazon Prime, but um, that was not my doing whatsoever. I just, I found a distributor. It was actually the third distributor we had for that film um but they're the ones that we stuck with and they've put us on several several platforms we're on prime first and then they made dvds as well so people were able to buy the dvd at first and then that, and it's also on a, a platform called tubi which has a lot of independent film i i don't know how you get stuff on tubi but I'm under the impression that it's not difficult because there's a lot, there's a lot of awesome stuff on Tubi and there's a lot of caca on Tubi too. <laughs> um, but I love it all equally. Like I, I, if I didn't know about, if I didn't, Good Grief wasn't on Tubi, I wouldn't know about it. Um, but it's actually kind of a cool <laughs> station. They've got legit films and they've got some not so legit films, but it's fun to watch both of them on that platform. It's on a few other platforms right now uh, that it just got on, but I don't remember what those are offhand. I should, but I don't. <laughs> so do you, um, do you have any other like projects that you're writing or creating for yourself or for others that you've got coming down the pipeline? Uh, nothing down the pipeline, but there are some things that I've had in my mind for a while. I just, I just, you know, need to sit down and actually do it yeah um and i have a few times but it's kind of a inherently bleak subject matter because it has to do with um suicide um and yet it's a it's a life-affirming uh story but it's i like to do a lot of research before i actually do it because i don't want I don't want my story to be surface. I want it to be as authentic as possible. Mm -hmm. um, so it's tough to try to figure out to make it honest and yet not bring it way down and try to have have it because I don't know. It's a delicate tightrope to walk. Yeah, it is. So I'm I'm trying to walk it right now. <laughs> so. Uh, what was it like portraying Richard Pryor? <laughs> I have to ask. <laughs> uh, a, a dream and a, a nightmare at the same time. <laughs> uh, the, okay, the quick 
the quick version of how I even got that role is I, a friend of mine is a casting director who actually cast Rachel getting married, funny enough. Um, <laughs> she also cast I'm Dying Up Here. And she asked me to do a, a, a play reading. Sorry, not a play reading, a table read. And I thought, I thought I was just filling in for someone who already had the role. And it turns out that they hadn't found anybody. And I went to go, I left the reading and then I got a call saying, I don't know what you did in there, but they really liked you and they want you to come in and audition for it in a couple days. So I locked myself in my apartment and worked on it. Um, and then I did the audition and the next thing I know later on that day, I have the part. So I find out about this, this project even existed on a Thursday. And then the following Wednesday, I'm on set in costume and hair and makeup and I'm doing crowd work in front of like 70 extras and the entire main cast. Um, so in that sense, it was really terrifying, but I really didn't stop to think about what a dream role it was or how difficult it was. I just realized that I had, I had big shoes to fill and it was, it was betraying a man that means a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to do it justice. And that's all I could think about. And I didn't have time. There was no, I w- if I had an extra week, I could have, I could have uh, dived uh, a little, dive a little deeper into it. But um, is it dive, dove? I don't know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm trying to say. Um, <laughs> So yeah, uh, but I'm glad I got to do it at all, and I got to do a second episode as well. So that was very fun. cool. Yeah, that's that, that's pretty quick, and I'm surprised that the film or the what well, is it a show? It's a series. It's a series on Showtime. They were uh, yeah. So they had been looking for someone to play the role. I mean, what I'm told is they were looking for about four months, and they couldn't find anybody. And then, out and then all of a sudden they're like, hey, we're filming next week. We need somebody. And then they yeah. Go, so like, hey. in a sense, if you think about it, it's like, well, he's good enough. Put him in there. But, <laughs> um, Not at all. Come on. But no, but they, they were really, they were really sweet. Actually, the creator of the show came up to me one time. I mean, not to, anyway, he came up to me during the, the shoot and was like, Brandon, you're a, you're a, can I curse on here? Yes, you can curse on here. Okay, so this is what he said. He's like, Brandon, you're a goddamn godsend. <laughs> I'm like, really? He's like, oh, yeah, we didn't know what we were going to do. We had been looking for somebody for months, this, that, and the other. And, you know, everybody, the producers and the director and the rest of the cast, they were, they were super complimentary. So, Very cool. I personally, I don't know how you guys feel about this, but whenever I see a really big Hollywood scale actor like if like ryan reynolds or somebody on that level or something portrays somebody else that everybody else knows so like richard Pryor, uh you know everybody knows him they recognize him so having someone who is also extremely famous play that person not ryan reynolds but you know <laughs> but if someone else were to play charlotte <laughs> johansson oh, as oh. harriet Tubman. right uh, that creates a whole nother issue. <laughs> right. I can't usually unsee the other famous actor. So I prefer when people, you know, 
like skilled actors that aren't A-list, top of the line, like super famous for no reason. You know, who knows why they're famous? But uh, well, I prefer when people play these characters because it's like I can envision them embodying that character as opposed to trying to like not see Ryan Reynolds as whoever else. You know. Well, Chadwick Boseman is great because he's played three famous people. And Black Panther. <laughs> I, you know what? Before Black Panther, I, I could say, oh, man, he's really embodying these roles. But now that I've seen Black Panther, I'm like, I just see, right. he, I just he, see the Black he Panther. He got in at the perfect time because he just knocked three real famous people out of the park before anyone really knew who he was. So now it's kind of going to be tough for him to do that again. But who did he play? He played Jackie Robinson and Thurgood Marshall. And who was yeah. one other? One other famous person. I just see the king of Wakanda now. That's that's all I see. So, yeah. you know, Marvel did that and they kind of, all those actors, any of the Marvel actors, I can't see them as anyone else. Now now it's, I watched the movie Extraction with Chris Hemsworth the other day mm -hmm. and he's not playing anyone famous, but he's playing like a military guy. And I'm like, that's just Thor with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> he looks exactly or, um... the same. He didn't do his hair different, nothing crazy. Maybe if an actor changed their appearance or something. But sometimes it's like, I just want to see someone embody a character and me forget that, oh, that's such and such actor. It's like uh, Hugh Jackman playing Wolverine. That's how he got famous. Before that, he was playing Curly in Oklahoma. <laughs> like, it was a very strange experience. I met Hugh Jackman on, off of his Broadway show. He did a, was it off-Broadway or on-Broadway? The boy, the boy from... Boy from Oz. I think so. Uh, it was right across the street from where me and Victoria met on 50th Street. We used to work at Applebee's together. And uh, he- When you looked at Applebee's in Times Square? Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. <laughs> Throw us right yeah. in the fire. We now work in, at any restaurant now because yeah. of that. <laughs> yep. I can imagine. Um, so I meet Hugh Jackman. I'm just passing him in the street and he's just chilling on the side of the road. And I was just like, oh my God, it's Hugh Jackman. He's Wolverine. And I was seeing him and meeting him and just shaking his hand and stuff. It was super weird because I was like, this is now my image of him in real life. I'm like waiting for him to like pop his claws out and stuff. And now I see him in any other movie and I just, I just see Wolverine in another movie. I was a, uh, one of the first jobs I had in casting is I was re a reader for the movie Rent. Uh, and... James Marsden came in to read for the role of Roger. And by the way, uh, had uh, Adam Pascal not gotten the part, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure they would have given it to, to James Marsden because he was so good. But I saw him at a, um, a Baja Fresh one day. <laughs> and people, I'm sure people are used to coming up to him and saying like, are you Cyclops? Were you an X-Men? But instead, I came up to him and I said, hey, did you audition for Rent? And he goes, yeah, how do you know that? I'm like, I was your reader. <laughs> <laughs> That's better than saying, hey, were you in that X-Men movie? You know? I like to pick, I like to go up to people that I know are famous for one particular thing, but giving them credit for something completely different that most people don't even know about. Like, I met Barry Gordy one time. Uh, and everyone was praising him about, you know, his, his music with Motown and working with Michael Jackson and Stevie Wonder and all these people. But me being me, 
I said, um, I really appreciate the fact that you produced the movie, The Last Dragon. <laughs> and he was like, oh, thank you. <laughs> well, he's probably gonna remember you as opposed to the six million other people that say the same thing over and over. Yeah, probably. <laughs> yeah. Victoria, you name drop now. Oh, I. <laughs> We're name so, dropping over here. Let's do it. No, I've only, so I've only met, I've only m actually met like two famous people and I, I was fangirling super hard and this is how much of a nerd I am. I love the TV show MASH. And um, I, when I worked, when I first got to New York, I worked at uh, Kleinfeld Bridal, Wayne Rogers, who played Trapper on the TV show. And he would come in every once in a while and I worked up in customer service and I'm flipping out. I'm like, oh my God, it's Trapper. I need, I can't, I don't know what to do. <laughs> and everyone's like, it's just Wayne. Why are you freaking out? I finally got um, one of the fashion directors to introduce me and he's like, you could just go introduce your, I was like, I can't. I'm going to freak out. And he finally, I, I introduced myself to him. Um, and I was like, I love you on MASH. He's like, you're way too young to know what that is. <laughs> I was like, no, I've been watching it since I was a kid. He gave me a hug. Best moment of my life. Swear to God. <laughs> Funny. Don't tell Nick. Who's the second person? <laughs> Don't tell yeah. your fiance that that's the best moment of your life. Nick's <laughs> proposal, second best, you know. Right. After meeting Trapper John. Just right. kidding. And then, then the moment that I asked you to co-host this podcast with me. That's that's three, right? <laughs> yeah, it's the top yeah. three. Right awesome. <laughs> Who was the second person? Um, Alan Alda from MASH. Oh, there you um, go. He, uh, family. I went to see him on Broadway in Love Letters, and we were standing outside waiting, and his driver was like, just so you guys know, he doesn't stop and like he doesn't do autographs. He doesn't, he'll, you know, wave and everything, but he doesn't stop. And he's asking everybody what, you know, what they know him from. And people are like, oh, Blacklist. Oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I was like, MASH, I love him as Hawkeye. He's the best. <laughs> he's like, you're weird. Okay. <laughs> All you have to do is meet Jamie Farr and you got the hat trick. Oh my God. I, Wait, I'm is Jamie Farr still around? Jamie Farr is, and um, Loretta Swit is still around. Gary Berghoff is still around. Alan Alda. Are you a fan of the movie? I like the movie, but I watched the TV show first. Sure. So it's, I'm a little attached to that, if you couldn't tell. Um, so watching the movie afterwards was a little jarring for me because I didn't realize, especially because Gary Berghoff is in both. Right. Oh, that's right. So that's also a little weird. But it, they're both really, really good. Um, and you can, it's interesting to watch how the TV show started to drift from what the movie was as it got further along. Yeah, the Korean War is the longest war of all time, according to MASH. <laughs> uh, so Brandon, we were now we're name dropping and stuff, but uh, tell us a little bit about episodes too. You did an episode of episodes. Is that fun to say? Is that like a set joke that everybody on that set goes like, oh, doing an episode of episodes, aren't we? Uh, probably it wasn't when I was there, but whenever I would mention that I, I did episodes, someone would say, episodes of what? I go, oh, <laughs> really, are we gonna <laughs> do this on first <laughs> joke? Um, yeah, I worked on episodes. Um, it was cool. Um, I had never, Usually, you know, it was a one day thing. Um, and 
usually, you know, if you're just a day player, you, the, the star will introduce themselves to you and you block it out and, you know, they'll be, they'll do a little chit chatty stuff with you and then they'll go off and do their own thing. But I remember we, uh, we rehearsed the scene and then afterwards, um, Matt LeBlanc comes up to me and goes, Hey, you want to run lines? I'm like, Yes, television legend Matt LeBlanc. I would love to run lines with you. Sure, <laughs> Joey. I would love to. He would, yeah, he was really sweet, and he's he's actually if you think he's funny on TV, he's way funnier in person, and he's just raw. And <laughs> I don't even remember half the stuff he was saying. I just remember like trying not to cry from laughing. <laughs> he's but he's a he's a stand up dude. Very cool. Yeah. I loved working on that show. Are you, do you have any other episodes of things coming out that was supposed to happen before quarantine or anything like that? Uh, I did an episode of God Friended Me that came out just before quarantine or no, it came out in the right when quarantine started. And then I was in an episode of High Fidelity that's on Hulu now with, um, with Zoe Kravitz. Mm-hmm which people really like, it's a really good show. Um, and then I have, a sh- I have an episode, it's like super fast. I think I have like two lines, but I did it because of the pedigree of everybody. It was produced by J.J. Abrams and written by Stephen King. And um, I have a scene with Joan Allen and Julian Moore and um, Jennifer Jason Lee. But if you blink, you'll miss me. Uh, at the time it was called Faces, but it's based off of one of Stephen King's books called uh, Lizzie's story. Um, it's supposed to come on Apple Plus sometime in the fall, but they were supposed to finish shooting in April. So who knows when it's going to come out now. Um, and then I did a an independent film where I, uh, I had a supporting role in that. It's called Confession. I shot that earlier this year. And that's, uh, I don't know when that's coming out, um, but who's in it? Nolan Gerard Funk from Glee, Sarah Hay from Flesh and Bone, um, Clark Bacco, she's on a show called Letter Kenny. So, yeah. Sweet. That's what I got coming up. Like, I ask, what's it like uh, doing the whole actor audition thing during quarantine? What's that been like for you? Well, traditionally, I, I really, I have always. N- not been a fan of self-tape auditions and I just recently probably in the last year or so got to the point where I'm cool with it so that came just in the nick of time (laughs) um so and I was working on audition coaching uh in person but I had been wanting to transfer that over to um uh you know remote like zoom meetings so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm currently working with a few actors just to like, are, that are friends of mine just to test it out and see how I'm going to make it work. It, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kinks to work out right now, but I'm still trying to figure that out, but hopefully I'll, I'll, I'll be up and running soon. Gotcha. Well, I have to ask, why did you suggest Rachel getting married for, for the movie we should look at? We should say, too, that you chose maybe 15 movies. Yeah. <laughs> not, not only that, you chose, like, 10 movies and then a majority of the MCU films. That's a quote. 
Yeah. <laughs> well, the, that's because I, I, I'll watch any, pretty much any MCU movie I'm like cool with, except I don't like Thor, the, the Dark World, and I don't like Iron Man 3. I could do without those. They don't need to be seen. Um, I like Iron Man 3 for what it is. I don't. I dislike some stuff about it. I like some stuff about it. But, if there had never been another Iron Man movie or MCU movie, I would have been like, this movie's amazing. But it, when you see all those other movies, you're just like, eh. Yeah. Iron Man, Iron Man 3 would have been phenomenal in the 90s. <laughs> um, yeah. But Rachel getting married, I remember seeing that movie in the theater and just being transfixed. There's a, there's a, you really feel like a fly on the wall. It's, it, it's so intimate and so private. And you, you as an audience member feel like you shouldn't be witness to these moments of these people's lives, but you, somehow you snuck in the back door and you're trying to stay as quiet as possible as so as not to disturb them. There, there's something about that that's just, that was it's so authentic to me. And it's just a little snippet of these people's lives, but it's a really important moment in their lives. And it just, I don't know, it, it, there's something about that that I, I've always appreciated and, and, and enjoyed. Yeah. Yeah, I I loved how intimate it was. And I think sometimes um, with movies, uh, you know, you, you get lost in the spectacle and the grandeur and the, the magic of what you can do on film. But something about this piece, because it's so raw and it's so real and it's so simple. I yeah. It, it, I was kind of surprised to learn that the budget was like twelve million dollars for it, and I'm wondering if that's because it's probably mostly salaries. Yeah, that's why I'm looking at the list of people that. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah. It's Anne Hathaway's salary, and then that's pretty much the rest of his production. There, I there, mean, big names there, like Bill Irwin is is. I mean, he's not the biggest TV star, but he's he's a famous clown theater actor. Yeah, incredible. Um, and then you have Deborah Winger in it. Winger, I mean, uh, the lead singer of, I can't remember his name right now, lead singer of um, TV on the radio. Mm -hmm. uh, Tunde something or another, I can't remember his last name. He's the, he's the, he's the guy that Rachel's getting married to. Mm -hmm. um, there's a scene in that movie uh, at, at the, uh, the, the, the rehearsal dinner where Rachel gets up and starts to make a speech yeah. And I've seen that movie countless times. And every time I get to that scene, I cringe. Like it's almost to the point where sometimes I have to pause the movie because I can't sit through the whole thing. I did, I did pause the movie. I paused it and I was like, I'm going to make myself a sandwich and think about other things for two minutes. Oh, I immediately yeah. got on my phone and I was like, I have to like, I, I want the movie to keep going, but I need to distract myself from how awkward and uncomfortable I feel. Yeah, credit, credit to Anne Hathaway because uh, that's one of the roles I feel like she kind of soaked into it and I kind of forgot, oh, that's Anne Hathaway for a little bit. Um, hey, I have a question, Victoria. Do you, how do you feel about Anne Hathaway? 
Um, I have mixed feelings about Anne. Yeah, Hathaway. what is that? I, I've noticed that women have this thing about Anne Hathaway. I'm not trying to be sexist or anything, but men are just like, hey, whatever. She's an actress, but women are like, oh, I can't stand I, I, I think she's extremely talented for sure, and I think she does the work and puts into it. But I think there's, uh, I think there's something about her and like the way she really campaigned for her Oscar and stuff like that. Oh. And I think maybe, honestly, I, I completely can understand, like, you, she was amazing in Les Mis. She was one of the only good things about that film. Um, so, sure. But I think once she, I knew she was campaigning so hard for it, and then she was, like, crying, like, like doing the Taylor Swift, oh, my God, me? Like, I think that's when I was, like, okay. okay. I, yeah. I see. But like I, I have no I don't have a problem with her work. I think I had a hard time with her at the beginning of Rachel getting married because she's she's Anne Hathaway and she's so beautiful. And I knew mm -hmm. that Rachel or not Rachel, um Kim, her character Kim was a mess and a drug addict. And I was like, how can you still be that pretty? Yeah, I see. But I don't I mean that's just a that's just a minor like aesthetic thing that I was like I'm having a hard time forgetting that you're a beautiful Hollywood starlet I'm gonna say something controversial <laughs> <laughs> I I believe that Anne Hathaway is the best cat woman I say I don't know I feel like I have a hard time comparing them sometimes because the the worlds that they're in are so different so she's a great Batwoman for the Christopher Nolan world, she would have been terrible for the Tim Burton world. You know what I mean? So, hmm. from my side of it, I'm of that. I'm yeah, kind of like Michelle Pfeiffer was perfect as the Tim yeah. Burton Catwoman in that almost comic book world, but like dark comic book world. Do you know who was supposed to play that part? No. Uh, Oh, what's her name? Do you know who was supposed to play that? Yeah, I want to, I, I keep, in my brain, I want to say Anne Bancroft, but that's not it. <laughs> uh, who, who's, who's married to, to uh, uh, oh God, why am I forgetting her name? Uh, forgetting everybody's name right now. We have a phone, we can look it up. I can't believe I'm forgetting her name right now. Married to who, do you know? She was, uh, uh, Annette Benning. Annette Benning. No. Annette Benning was supposed to play Catwoman. She was originally cast in that role. And right before, the, like two weeks, three weeks before they started shooting, she found out that she was two months pregnant with Warren Beatty's kid. And so she decided to, uh, she had to leave the movie and then they cast Michelle Pfeiffer. I funny because in the other Batman movie, Sean Young was supposed to play Vicky Vale and she broke her leg or her arm horseback riding and she had to bow out and then they put Kim Basinger in the role like a week before they were supposed to start shooting. Hey, sometimes you don't have a cast lined up a week before you're supposed to shoot and then all of a sudden you're Richard Pryor. <laughs> this is true. We actually, in my movie, somebody else was supposed to play Pepper uh, and 
I don't know, like two weeks out, she couldn't do, we found out she couldn't do it. Um, and I, I had already cast Rachel True in another role. It was a, it was a day player role. <clears throat> I realized that Rachel is just kind of like Pepper anyway in real life. So I was like, hey, would you rather play this part? So, so I had to write a whole new scene in order to have that make sense because the original role, originally I was supposed to go to this uh, woman named Britt Morgan um, who plays Livewire on Supergirl. And I don't know if you watched uh, True Blood, but she played Debbie Pelt. Um, she was supposed to play that role. But she ended up getting a, a job and couldn't take it. So, so that's yeah. how that I've been in that scenario where uh, when when I first started my company back in like 2016, we first thing we wanted to shoot was just a random fight scene because we were like, you know, a bunch of guys. We were like, we have a camera now. Let's have everyone beat the crap out of each other and film it. Uh, so we choreographed this whole fight scene. Um, the lead actor, his name is Michael Lamarca, uh, did, he did all this choreography and he worked with his trainer. They broke the whole scene down where him and the other guy were supposed to fight each other. And then like two days before the guy got into a car accident. Oh no. And he just wasn't unable to do it. And he's, he's fine, but it, you know, he wasn't going to be able to film a fight scene. And we were like, ah, we already have all this stuff in place. We should just do it. Do we know anyone else that can quickly learn the choreography? So Mike called up his, one of his buddies that he's known for a very long time and just said, Hey man, I know you can do backflips. Can you also do fighting stuff? And he was like, yeah. <laughs> so he came on board and it came out really great. Uh, I, I think we eventually gave it the title Inevitable just because the, no one speaks during the whole thing. They just walk in the room and beat the crap out of each other. Um, it just seemed like a powerful title to say like, it's inevitable that these two just fight. There was no film based around it. It's just a fight scene. But the fact that we put in all this time and effort into the choreography and not only were they choreographing how they were going to fight, I was choreographing how to film. And this new guy was super tall. And that created a couple issues with like when he flips him over at one point, I couldn't be in that spot because he's a foot taller and he would have kicked me in the face. Um, which I have to protect. I have to protect my face. So yeah, man, that's your moneymaker. That's the moneymaker. Not behind the camera. Um, but... You know, it, it creates a lot of issues when people put a lot of time and effort into all the pre-production, building up to the production, and all of a sudden it's just snapped away. Yeah. And, uh, that's, that's basically what coronavirus is doing to every single film production right now. Slapping it in the face. I, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I've actually been enjoying the, um, the time off. It was funny because when we right when the holidays were over i had i took a short i was gonna go i went to los angeles to visit friends and family and i was gonna be out there for two weeks and then i ended up booking two jobs and had to come back so it was a good problem to have but at the same time i was like oh god i wish i had i wish i had some time to just relax because i had been working so much throughout the holidays on this other side job that i have and then, and then I went right into this, these acting jobs. So I didn't really have any time off and now I've gotten, I've had two months off. So yeah, <laughs> careful what you wish for. 
Yeah. Where Where are you now? Are you in? Uh, I'm in uh, Brooklyn. Oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. I was gonna say it's a good thing too that I mean, trying to see the positives and all this crazy negative, uh, is that we have this podcast now. We were gonna start filming it in person, uh, and then coronavirus happened. But now it's enabled us to start it on Zoom, which is still cool, and to open up our world to people that are in other states. Yeah. Uh, so there's people in LA that we we're gonna interview somebody soon that's gonna be in LA. So it's kind of cool because normally we wouldn't be able to have that person on. So that's seeing a positive and all the negative. I guess my fear is that I I really hope that as cool as this is, I really hope that this doesn't become the norm. I I'm glad it I I'm happy for it to be an add-on. Um, but I would I would I always. I prefer, you know, one-on-one or rather in-person uh, interactions. Well, I, so. I have a feeling most people feel that way. I know like auditions are tend to go a little, they're starting to go more in the self-tape direction, even for theater, which is astonishing to That's me. That's weird to me. For I, I can't, like you, when you put someone on camera, you can't guarantee that they're going to be able to cross the footlights in your 800 seat theater. Like there's, yeah there's a difference, <laughs> but I have a feeling that now that it's kind of been forced on everybody, um, people are starting to miss the human contact, the in-person. And while it's great to know that this is here and we know how to do it, um, if we need to, uh, I don't, I don't think it's ever going to completely replace everything. I, I can't see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you're right. <laughs> I know it's well it's hard right now because but I guess I think it's more of people you know human beings tend to gravitate towards convenience and if you don't have to like take a shower and get dressed and you know you know people are doing these things without wearing pants now yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wearing, for the record I'm wearing shorts so. <laughs> any pants wait hold on let me no I'm just kidding uh I am wearing pants I'm just kidding Oh, you know what? Well, Brandon, thank you so much for swinging by and doing this yeah. podcast. I really appreciate it. I'm thank really you. honored that you guys would want me and ask me to. Thank you. Of course, of course, you're amazing. I love all the work that you do. I love working with you. So of course, yeah. I have you. On this and I'm looking forward to the uh, the next installment of um, of Scar Tissue. Thank you. I'm looking yeah. forward to see what we all do with it what we yeah. might come up with so we'll see what happens yeah but time to get that pre-production stuff done we do <laughs> have the time well, uh, thank you again we're going to share all of your links and everything so people can watch good grief they can cool. see the real um and we're going to talk a little bit more jim and i about rachel getting married thank you for suggesting that yeah absolutely thanks for having me again thank all you right. brandon all right bye guys All right. Well, thank you to Brandon Ford Green for joining us today um, and for suggesting Rachel getting married. I had heard of this film. I think I was I was in an acting class and um, it was a acting for TV and film. And uh, one of the monologues that someone suggested for me was uh, Rachel's monologue from her AA class. Um, and I, I loved it. I didn't end up picking that one, but 
I, you know, every time I, that I would hear the name of the film, I would be like, oh, I need to see that because I love that, that piece so much. And now I got a chance to see it and, and it's wonderful. It is a tough watch right now in this climate, but it was really good. Yeah. It's not like it's a virus or anything. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with what we're actually going through with like quarantine. It's just such a heavy movie that you don't want to think about that right now. You're locked up inside, you're quarantined, you're dealing with real world problems. You want to watch a movie with any movie with Seth Rogen. That's what you want to watch right now. Because you he just was. hear him laugh and then you laugh too, because his laugh is so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, Fair. Any, any comedy, lighthearted, fun stuff, that's what you want to see right now. Heavier movies, I'm not really looking for them. Though I did really enjoy this movie, and I, I'm glad I did watch it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel what you're saying when you say, totally not the right time to watch this movie. Um, nobody coming on this podcast is suggesting fun comedies, though. Everybody's got their favorite movie, you know, there is some I drama. Like, I don't know, Jill, Jill gave, gave a nice, I hear when Harry met Sally, that was a... Romantic comedy, I'll give it that, yeah. I agree. But everything else has been uh, a little heavier, or... <laughs> Quite a bit. I might have to go to one of our next guests and be like, you got a comedy for me? Like, come on. I need uh, something light, please. <laughs> in the mood, please. Uh, but well, this movie, getting married was kind of our my fault. I picked it out of the twenty million movies. Yeah. That I Brandon did suggest like twelve movies, uh, but you chose that one. I'm glad you did, though. I'm glad I saw it uh, because it was also I think it came out in 2008, right around the same time that The Dark Knight came out, uh, and then shortly after. Anne Hathaway, a couple of years after, I forget when The Dark Knight Rises came out, where she played Catwoman, uh, shortly after she booked that role. So seeing all the different things that Anne Hathaway is doing or has done is kind of kind of cool, kind of interesting to see her in that different way. Yeah, I mean, for however you feel about Anne Hathaway, she is a very talented actress and she puts the work into it for sure. Um, I think I, I read an article recently um, about women embracing ugly performances and i think you know because there's you know this whole you know double standard for women and how they you know there's a level of beauty they always have to be but like some of the best performances are are when you get you know they're ugly and it hurts and you know they're raw and i think it was hard for me to see Anne Hathaway, like I was, uh, like I said to to Brandon, um, because she is so beautiful, um, and it was hard for me to see her in this role that is so raw, and it's just like it's an open nerve, essentially, is what her character of Kim is. She doesn't know her place. She doesn't know what to do with her after her hugely traumatic and tragic past. Um, People but I, not realize that too, in terms of like women playing quote unquote ugly roles, and it's it's not really like like they have to look ugly. It's not about that. It's about being realistic in terms of like when someone's going through something like a crazy crisis with their family and it's super emotional. She's not, you know, keeping it together and shedding one strong tear. It's you're bawling. You're you're a mess, 
And you don't see that in a lot of movies. Almost 99% of movies that a woman cries in, she's shedding that one tear. She's crying a little bit. She might be super emotional, but she's still able to talk. I don't know about you, but family arguments for me, they're loud. They're, they're intense. You don't just shed one tear while the other person spills out a dramatic monologue. Mm-hmm. So this movie felt really real because all these things were like, all these characters, you can tell they were all repressing all these emotions the whole time. And they were just exploding with it as soon as it couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. So it's kind of crazy to see that on film and just credit to the acting performances for getting that across because that's that's more realistic than the one tier. Well, and I think that in this film, it was so beautiful and real and watching, you know, they went, spoiler alert, um, Kim is a drug addict um, and when she was 16, she ended up accidentally crashing her car that had her little brother and a car seat in the back and her brother, it, she crashed it over bridge into water because she couldn't get her brother out and he drowned. Um, since then, her parents divorced. Um, I don't know if that was before or after, um, but, uh, you know, it, her relationship with her sister has been extremely rocky and she continued to be, she was only nine months sober at the point of the film. And this is, you know, years later, she's got to be close to 30 at this point. Her sister is getting married. So to have all of these unresolved issues and watching how all of this like explodes out for each different character was just, it was so real. It was so realistic to watch, you know, one character, you know, her father is overly, you know, caring and concerned and, you know, the other sister feeling like this is my day. Can we not talk about Kim for five seconds kind of a thing. And when the scene with her mother was so wrenching. I think too, having Anne Hathaway who is on, I would say just in terms of like how famous she is in terms of the other actors and actresses, you might recognize a couple of them. You might know them, but, there, no one has the same st- uh, stage presence or not, or people, like, she's like a household name. Huh? Name recognition. Yes. Uh, no one, everybody knows Anne Hathaway. So when you have all these characters just trying to live their lives, and as soon as Anne Hathaway's character walks in the room, she takes over and no one can think about, her dad can't think about anyone else. He's just all about her. Mm-hmm. Even though the movie is about Rachel's wedding, it, it's difficult. Because, you know, it, I think having that dynamic, too, where she's the most famous person on set, aids that in a, in a little way, in an in a interesting way. You know, it's still her acting performance that really brings it home, but that's kind of gets it off to a good start, in a way. Mm-hmm. But it's, it was just so heart-wrenching to see how all these people deal with the fact that, you know, Kim is still part of the family. She just has an addiction that caused the death of another member of the family. You know, that's uh, really heavy. (laughs) That's crazy heavy. And I think, too, everybody treated her like she was the black sheep. And that was, I think, her biggest problem throughout it was she, I don't know if she had expectations, her character, when she was going to get out of rehab and 
come back to her family life and if everybody was just going to go back to normal you know kind of like coronavirus where you're like i don't know if there's a new normal we're not going back to the same thing it's going to be different yeah um, i mean that's that's for sure the situation but i think you know the that really hit home at the point when um she's having the fight with her sister before she runs off and takes her dad's car um and she says i at this point i could be mother teresa but i still it's still my fault that Ethan's gone and I don't know who I'm supposed to be now. Yeah. You know, it's gotta be really hard of like, you know, how, how do you move on from that? How does the family move on from that? I don't know. I personally have never been in a horrible enough situation than that, you know? So yeah, it, I yeah. can't imagine. Um, but it's tough. I, I don't know what kind of research Anne Hathaway did. You know, does she go to these meetings and try to meet somebody that, uh, you know, as an actress, would you go that far to get the character right if you were playing that role? So let's say you were cast in this role and you were going to play Kim. Would you try to find somebody who was a drug addict and accidentally, you know, killed their brother in a car accident? Like, I mean, crazy. I can't even imagine approaching someone like, hey, I'm going to be in a movie and I'd love to talk to you about your brother. <sighs> <laughs> you gotta definitely that's a delicate situation you have to walk that carefully um you know i'm sure there was research in like what are aa meetings actually like i don't know if someone just can come in and sit on on them or you know what research she did in that situation but i mean you have to you have to do your research like that because otherwise you know you're just kind of winging it based on what you think it might be like and then it's not realistic yeah I mean, imagine what Kim, Anne Hathaway's character, would have said if someone walked up to her in the middle of the movie and said, hey, I'm an actress, and I'm playing this character, and it's very similar to you and what you went through. She would have punched that person in the face. She would have slapped them, ran away, been like, fuck off, dude. Yeah, 100%. 100% put that person out. I mean, that kind of, in a small way, happens a little bit, in a weird way, when they're at the hair salon. And this dude comes up who was in the yeah. hospital with her. She like barely remembers him, but she was super important to that guy because they got through the hospital together. She barely remembers the guy, but the guy's like, you're like, I remember you. Like, it's super important that I'm seeing you again. God has allowed me to have this time with you. And he's like super into this moment. And then all those lies come out that she told, which I imagine too, it sounds like this was right after the accident. Where, yeah, yeah. I would imagine too that if you do that and you're in that scenario and you know you're finally having to come to terms with what you did, you might not even be able to say it out loud. So when people ask you, you know, why are you here, you might come up with a couple lies. You're like, I can't even say that I killed my own brother in yeah. the back of my car because I drove off a bridge. So you might make up some other nonsense that still is really bad, but it's not something you went through, which kind of corrupts your rehab from the start yeah which is the point that our sister makes but like i think it's yeah. like that one of the most interesting dynamics is um rachel and kim's dynamic because rachel's also getting her phd in psychology so you can understand like she can't understand why someone at the beginning of rehab might not be ready to completely take responsibility especially a 16 year old kid first of all might not be able to take responsibility for 
um, what has happened um, and needs to protect herself a little bit with some strangers that don't know her. Um, but her sister's not willing to give her any slack or leeway in this situation. I think too, uh, it's, it's very contrasting from her dad because her dad gives her all the slack. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I kind of thought it was interesting too at the beginning when uh, Kim goes to her dad and says, oh, I need to go for blah, blah, blah. I have to go to this meeting. Which car should I take? And he's just like, I don't think you should drive. Yeah. Like, cool to, even though it was maybe years and years ago that this thing happened, it's still like hitting home for a lot of people. It's still in their thoughts and, you know, every every small thing, like, can I just borrow the car for a little bit? You wouldn't think of, me and you wouldn't think about something like that, but that right. whole family is probably like, no, you shouldn't drive. Mm -hmm. It's very off-putting, too, because it's like, maybe she's sober now, but still. Yeah, I mean, it's only nine months sober at that point. Yeah. You know? Um, one of my favorite lines from the show House of Cards, I forget his name, but the guy who's always kind of helping the president, like behind the scenes, like low-key, he's like kidnapping people. Oh, yes. uh, I forget his name, but he was an addict, and uh, they asked him, like, are you still an addict? He's like, I've always been an addict. I'm just a sober addict right now. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, that's a really good way of looking at it from the perspective of someone who is an addict or I don't know if it was alcohol or what for him, but for that character. Alcohol. Yeah. But, uh, you know, that's an Doug interesting Stamper. way. Who? Doug Stamper. Doug Stamper <laughs> from House of Cards. He delivered that line and I was, I kind of hit me and I was like, oh wow, that's a good way of looking at it. It's very interesting. I've never heard that before. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the only thing I'm addicted to is video games. So I don't know if there's a video game anonymous I should go to. I don't think you're quite at that level yet. <laughs> no, walk in. Hi, I'm Jim, and I'm addicted to video games. But something else I really, I loved about the film, and we, we touched on this a little bit earlier, was just how you felt like you were there. Yeah. You, know, you felt like you were, my, one of my favorite scenes from the whole thing was the dishwasher competition that the father had with the fiance on who can load the the most stuff into the dishwasher the best within a certain time limit and it just I felt so like I was in the moment with everybody I was in the kitchen and you were connected and then you also feel like like Brandon was saying earlier that you're intruding on these extremely private moments and I think that's just uh you know that just touches on the brilliance of the filmmakers and the cinematography and the director and the choices that they made with this film to really feel like you are there, you can't get away from it, you're trapped in this house with them to, and getting through this wedding with them. Yeah, and I mean, I don't know if that's how it was written, uh, but I really appreciate the way that it was directed because you go, for, or even edited, it might be the editor's choice to say, hey, we're gonna go from this scene because the dishwasher scene, it's this really fun scene where the new son-in-law and the father-in-law are like trying to see who can load the dishwasher faster. And it's really fun. And it's like, oh, your new family, I'm gonna show you how it's done kind of thing. Like that's such a fun thing. And it happened in between two serious, serious moments where at the end of it, 
he sees the plate that Ethan, the, the son that had died, had obviously made in like a second grade class or something. So you see it and it has his name on it. And it's like a school project and the dad sees it and it totally kills the moment, shuts it down. But I also forgot too that this long scene, it kind of pulls you away because you forget about it for a second and then you're reminded. And I think yeah. that's why they did these scenes at length as opposed to just like getting to the point and just saying it. They want you to forget that right before that scene too was this huge argument where the sister, I don't even know if that was the right, at the same time where the sister said, I really hate her. I hate my sister. That, was that wasn't that. That, was, that wasn't at that point. The argument that they were having was they were working on the seating arrangements. You're right. Yes. For the wedding. And still, they were trying to seat her own sister, not at the family table. Right. And that's, that's pretty crazy, too. That's tough. Uh, I mean, to it, it, it's as simple as saying, hey, there's 12 people at this table. Make it 13. Mm-hmm. Not too tough, you know? Um, I think if I had to make any criticism of this film, um, it would be just the length of it. it it's an hour and 50 minutes. Um, but I can understand the choice to make it as long as they did. Um, you know, you want it to feel it's a slice of life situation. You want it to feel real. You want it to feel like you're in the room with them. Um, so in these longer scenes and these longer moments where it feels like there's just air there, that that's what happens in real life conversations, especially in uncomfortable moments with your family and, and things like that. So I, I get the choice, but I think there, they could have taken some of the air out, especially maybe during the wedding. Um, I, you know, I think the wedding lasted just a little too long with some of the stuff that really didn't have, it didn't expand the story at all. It didn't show what was going on between the family members at that point. Yeah, from a, from a storytelling standpoint, I understand why those scenes went on for seemingly too long. Mm -hmm. I think the reason is because they want you to forget for a little bit, for a moment, about this crazy dramatic thing that's going on behind the curtain because you're not only seeing it from the perspective of inside the family, but there's also a ton of other people around. There's people that are, you know, just family friends or people that you don't want in the room during these serious moments. Anybody that's ever gone over a friend's house as a kid, like you, you probably went to a friend's house and the mom just starts screaming at the kid for not cleaning their room. And you're just sitting there like, please stop this. Yeah. I'm just here to hang out with my friends. Mm -hmm. I just want to do hood rat stuff with my friends. Um, but you know, anybody that's ever been around in not their own family while there was a big family argument, they know how awkward it feels. And that's how awkward they wanted you to feel with this movie. So as you're watching it, you're really like, I, that's why I paused it at one point because I was like, I need to walk away from this for five seconds. Yeah. Um, but it's super unnerving. And I think that credit too can go towards the camera work. The fact that it was handheld the whole time. Yeah, uh, that, I loved that. Especially, like, and it was super, super noticeable in, in certain scenes. Like, when she's breaking down in the car, and she's taking the car, and she, I, she's driving it down this wooded road at night. And you it, literally, it's, you could see the, the camera, well, cut to her, 
and then cut to the road and to the roadside there the roadside that they're passing and then back to her and you literally it feels like you're the one who's like what are you doing that's a speed limit sign what like yeah brilliant i loved that they're trying to make you the voice in her head in that moment um i mean the camera is basically the window into the movie uh and that's a weird way to say that but it kind of gives you perspective on different things at different times where even the characters of the film might not get that perspective so it's it's interesting where people place cameras in films i think the way they use the camera work in this film was a weird mix of kind of making it look like it's its own home movie yeah like if there's a extra family member there just filming it from the outside and then all of a sudden it, things get more serious and they hop into these really dramatic things where no one else is involved but there's parts of it too that are filmed I think to an extent of being like a home movie because there were parts in the opening where she comes home from from rehab and I noticed things that like right away like as a camera person where they were filming from inside out a window and everything was super blown out outside the window mm -hmm. basically just means that they weren't using the proper filters on the on the lens but when it comes to big productions you prop that's probably a choice to do that yeah. and the choice was probably to try to make it more look like a home movie of sorts that like you're in it you know because everybody remembers too when you grow up and you have home movies you look back they all look like that they all look like dad's holding the camera in a stupid way mm -hmm. and they kept going too to that one army guy uh the army the i forget what his title was um specialist yes yeah the specialist who i think was the groom's brother or something he was a military guy and the dad kept saying we we're glad you're here and we hope you're here for good and I kept thinking, is he saying that about this random new son-in-law that he's having? Or is he saying that about his own daughter who's just getting out of rehab? Mm. And I kept relating it to that because every time he said that, they would cut to Kim and Kim would be like, yeah, like, be hearing it and be hearing it like about herself. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting too. I don't know if you want to comment on her acting performance, which she did receive an Oscar nomination for. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I thought she was great. She was phenomenal. Um, I, I mean, I think, you know, it, acting, she's, she's a solid actress, 100%. She does, she does her work. She dives right into it. She completely, you know, lets herself go to it. But I think, you know, when a person receives accolades like that, they don't do it on their own. It's a testament to having, because acting is give and take. And if my scene partner doesn't give me anything, then I'm kind of left holding the ball. And, you know, sh sure, hopefully I'm, you know, strong enough and talented enough that I can still carry it. But if my partner is open and I'm open, then we can just pass the ball back and forth. So and everyone in this cast was so open and so willing that it really helped her shine as much as she did. So anytime literally any time that there's a, you know, best actor, best actress, whatever nomination, I think that it's also a testament to the work that their, their scene partners do with them. Yeah, that's why they get up on stage and they're like, I want to thank the people I worked with and all the thousands of people that made this film happen. You yeah. know, Anne Hathaway was one of many people on this set. Um, 
even though it was relatively small budget, it was only $12 million budget, I believe. Uh, yeah, yes. $12 million dollar budget. Like Brandon is right. It probably, it probably did all come down to salaries. It just, because it seems so simple and it took place essentially in the house. It could have. Maybe I mean, that's $12 million. You have, you have a film like, uh, uh, totally unrelated, but you have a film like Paranormal Activity, which was filmed for twelve grand, the very first one. And they oh, filmed it in a weekend. And they just used all these camera tricks. They had, you know, they obviously they planned it out way in advance, but the production only took like a weekend, maybe two, I forget exactly. And the budget was like nothing. It was literally like thousands of dollars, a couple of thousand dollars. And it just was a smash hit and it blew up. They made like five more of them and they were all terrible because they lost the magic of what it was to kind of have no money and just be like independent film. We got to make the best of it. And they really did make the best of it in that first one. And, you know, sometimes you're just not working with all the same tools. And when you can't get the greatest cameras, because this is cer certainly too, it's 2008 that this movie came out. There were better cameras. There are, cleaner looking cameras but I think they wanted to use cameras that made sense for the story and that's that's why they used cameras and techniques that make more sense to tell this story uh so can be appreciative of that um but I would also go to note that the budget for this film was 12 million dollars but it only brought in the box office 17 and a half million which five and a half million dollars on a big budget movie like that you know not that much of a turnover it's not a lot of money that would be considered a flop mostly. yeah well i gotta wonder too was it um was it widely released or was it just released in certain independent theaters well, i have the answer right here the film was released in the u.s to select theaters on october 3rd 2008 the film premiered at the 65th venice international film festival on september 3rd 2008 so a little bit before that uh, and the film also opened in Canada's Toronto's International Film Festival on September 6, 2008. And yeah, I guess it was select theaters, it looks like. I mean, I guess at that, like, are you trying not to, like, I'm not sure the, the thought process behind that. Like, are you trying not to make money? Like, I don't know. It's, I don't know. You know what it is? It's so expensive to widely distribute a movie. Mm -hmm. it, so remember when we spoke about Rocky? Yes. Way back when, five, six episodes ago, uh, we spoke about Rocky. The budget for that movie was a million dollars. The financial stuff that they needed to just market it and get it out there and distribute it, five and a half million dollars. So it's kind of crazy that it costs five times as much to get the movie just into theaters. No, I, I just think that that's part of the reason why people do feel disconnected from like award shows and and the the viewership is down on on the Oscars and things like that, not just because of all the you know the controversy with Oscars so white and and stuff like that, but because like the films that they're selecting, while they might be worthy of Oscar nominations, the majority of people who are going to sit at home and watch the Oscars haven't seen them. They don't have access to them, so that you know I feel like it defeats the purpose a little bit. You can't complain that you're not getting enough people to watch your self-congratulatory award show if you're not even letting them see the films that you're putting, that you're nominating. Yeah. It's you know? pretty too. I don't know what they're going to do this year uh, because there's just straight up 
so far three, four months of movies that just aren't coming out. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, any, anybody that wins an Oscar next year, it's almost like a freebie because there's not a lot of competition. Uh, but I don't know if they're going to do Oscars or if they might just like lump 2020 into 2021 like that. Maybe they should because there's only so many movies that came out. It might not make sense to do 2020 Oscars. I mean, as of right now, they're still planning on them with like letting, you know, films be released on demand first. And then as long as they have a theater date somewhere down the line, mm -hmm. uh, you know, they'll, they'll be okay. Uh, I don't know if that's going to become a regular practice as we move out of quarantine and get into a whole new, a whole brave new world out there of, of how these things work. But, you know, it just, it, I, I find it interesting when films like Rachel getting married, you know, they don't make a lot of money, but they're, they're up for, you know, tons of awards and stuff like that. And not a lot of people know about it. Yeah. And when it's not super wide release, and I mean, it is on Amazon right now for like four bucks. So mm -hmm. if you guys are listening to this and you're like, I don't understand any of this because I haven't watched the movie, pause this, go watch the movie, then you'll understand. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's, you know, it's four bucks on Amazon right now. Um, it, I mean, I thought it was great. And I mean, you can watch it. I think it's on YouTube as well. Like you can rent it from YouTube um, for the, the same amount, I think four bucks. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's tricky because you have independent films too. The best movie might not be a Hollywood production that the Oscars even know about. So there might be a filmmaker out there that made a really amazing movie that might like blow everyone away, but they don't know how to market it or they can't spend the money to distribute it across the country in all these different mediums. Yeah. Because distribution is so expensive. And I think that's where a lot of movie theaters have are having trouble too because they're a big part of that they're a big part of the distribution and they work with these massive companies and put out all these deals and put out ads and advertising is so expensive as well mm -hmm. it it almost hurts your film because you have to put aside so much money to just get it out not even just making it so when you have a company that's like like netflix who's like skip all that just come online <laughs> ready for it whenever you're ready for it Put it on Hulu, man, and you don't have to go to, I mean, there's still distribution companies that handle those, but it's just astronomically easier to do that than to distribute it for theaters and for other types of venues and things like that. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, hopefully we'll still be able to see stuff like this, you know, stuff like independent films will be more readily available on demand, so we'll be able to see movies like Rachel getting married, you know, when they come out and when, you know, they're making waves in, in the awards, you know, cause I, I, I hate when award season goes by and I'm like, I haven't seen any, I haven't heard of half of these things. I have the movies that get nominated for Oscars or win Oscars. Mm -hmm. I watch after the Oscars, like, mm -hmm. Oh, they won or they were nominated. Cool. I'll watch it. You know, mm -hmm. uh, like parasite, it won best picture. I watched it two months after the Oscars. Okay, well, thank you guys for watching. You can like, you can comment, and subscribe. Make sure to stay tuned for all of our different mediums between Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts where you can listen, and you can also watch on YouTube. 
again, we want to thank Brandon Ford Green for taking the time to join us today, talking a little bit about his experiences as an actor, as a filmmaker, and as an audition coach, and for suggesting the movie that we dove into today, Rachel Getting Married. Uh, this was the AFC Podcast. Thank you for joining us. My name is Victoria Fragnito. And I'm Jim Galizia. Thank you very much, and see you guys next time.